what great and precious promises we have in our Lord. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we give thanks to you today that we can stand upon your promises. That when we look to and trust in those promises, we will never fall because you will never fail. And Father, as you call us to faith in you, you demonstrate your trustworthiness over and over again, both in the Scriptures, throughout history, and in our own lives. We know that you never go back on your word. And it is also a reminder to us, Lord, of our own fallenness and the fallenness we experience from others when we so easily go back on our word. And yet, Father, we find that in Christ, all His faithfulness to Your word is counted to us by faith. And so we can come before you this morning and we can be accepted. We can come before you and you delight in our worship. You delight in the giving of our tithes and offerings. And we come before you and today, Lord, we hear from your word. So, Lord, in our midst today, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, may we seek to be encouraged and to depend more upon those precious and great promises you have given to us. We pray all this in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be moving through 2 Peter at a breakneck speed as we're going to cover verse 4 today. You know, it, it, I often like look at myself and I'm thinking like, man, we're never getting anywhere. But I come to these verses and there's just so much truth, so much treasure to mine from God's Word. So as long as you're okay with it, and even if you're not okay with it, we're just going to take our time going through this. We've been looking at the power that pilgrims have in the knowledge of God. And again, First Peter was... Peter explaining to us what the path of a pilgrim is, what it looks like to walk as a pilgrim in this life. And then today, or, or I'm sorry, as we started 2 Peter, Peter points us to where we find the power to do this. Where do we find the strength to walk as a pilgrim? And that comes through the knowledge of God. So look with me. We'll begin our reading again in verse 1, and then we'll read down to verse 4, and then we'll focus specifically on verse 4. This morning, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things. 
that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It is amazing to me to note here, as Peter, as Peter points us to this power that we have in the knowledge of Christ, that that knowledge gives us a knowledge of who He is, of who His character is, His glory and excellence. And when you know God, you know a God who makes promises. And it is to those promises that Peter points us to recognize that there is power for us in the pilgrim pathway that we are called to walk in those promises. And so this morning I'd like us to consider the power of God's promises. Now we're all very familiar with promises. We all make them. We all have people who make them to us. And oftentimes we, we will determine the surety or the, 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 the fact that a promise will come true based upon the character of the person who's making the promise. So, for instance, if a politician comes to you and makes a promise, how much are you going to depend on that promise? All right? we, we often find that that's likely not going to be the case. That they will say one thing to get themselves into a particular position, then oftentimes come back or pull back on what they said. It's very odd and rare to find a politician who follows through on their promises. Maybe you've looked and, and you've looked for, for hope in the promises of close friends. And oftentimes you, you'll know your friends better than others and you know some friends are reliable and some friends are not so reliable. Perhaps you've looked at your family and family members, maybe parents, spouses. And they were promises made and as time went on and you knew their character, you found that sometimes they kept, sometimes some people kept their promises and often other times people did not. The reality is that in every human relationship you have, there are people who will make promises to you and at some point fall, fail to follow through. In many ways, our experience here on the earth is an experience of broken promises. In fact, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we probably experience and ourselves fail to follow through on our promises more than we experience those promises being kept or us keeping our own promises. This can be heartbreaking. This can be difficult to walk through life when essentially you find that nobody is reliable. And Peter here points us to a wondrous hope that while the world may not be reliable, while your friends may not be reliable, may, while your closest relationships may not be reliable, God is reliable. And this provides power for us as we walk the path of a pilgrim. So I want us to look at just two points this morning. But don't get too excited. They're long points, so we won't be done early. 
The first is I want us to see the nature of God's promises. The nature of God's promises. And the first thing we see is that these promises are granted by God's glory. So if you look with me again in verse 4, it says, By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. The by which is pointing us back to what was discussed at the very end of verse 3. God's own, or particularly Christ's own, glory and excellence. It is by or through the glory and excellence of God that the promises are given to us. In other words, God guarantees what He says in a promise by His own character and nature. He backs it up by saying it is through these things that He gives us these promises. And again, not to rehash what we looked at last week, but it's important for us to note those two different things, glory and excellence. The glory of God is at stake stake when God makes a promise. If God were to fail to follow through on that which He promises, then He would cease to be glorious. Now, this does not mean that that's a possibility. Is it possible for God to cease to be glorious? No. But what that does do for us is it provides a sure foundation for those promises. That just as sure as the glory of God will remain unchanged, so His promises will remain unchanged. He backs up His word with His character. And this allows us then to be confident in those promises. The writer of Hebrews sort of extrapolates this idea when he discusses the promises made to Abraham. I mean, remember, Abraham is just this guy chilling out in Ur of the Chaldees, minding his own business, and the grace of God captures him. And he's called by God to leave his family, to leave his kindred, to leave his nation, and to go to a place that God will show him. And that God is going to make of Abram at this time, his name's not Abraham yet, of Abram, a great nation. And that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the writer of Hebrews picks this up and he talks about how God confirmed that promise to Abram. He says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, who does he swear by? Himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Then he makes this connection. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired, and this is so important, to show more convincingly, In other words, God is saying, I want to show both Abraham and his heirs. I want to demonstrate to them that my promises are true. What does he do? That his promise is by the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have What type of encouragement? Strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast 
anchor of the soul. God's promises are granted by His glory. How important this is for us as pilgrims. Listen, there there is so much that is uncertain in this world today. Does anyone know what's going to happen with Ukraine and Russia? Anyone? No. We can listen to the pundits and the experts on television, and they will spout their opinions, but they don't know. We, we don't know what's going to happen with the banks. Anyone concerned about banking lately? Banks are falling left and right. You know, I, I can't guarantee you that your money's going to be there tomorrow. There's a lot of things that we're uncertain of. But the believer can be certain that God will keep His promises. That no matter what in this world is uncertain, we do have some place to tether our souls. And that is on the very great and precious promises of our God. So we have these wonderful promises given to us, assured by God's very character. This allows us to take heart. Everything that God has promised us in Christ will come to pass. He has guaranteed it with His own glory. So as we walk through this life as pilgrims, as we walk in a world where we don't belong, we find hope in those glorious promises of God. But not only are His promises granted by His glory, we also see that His promises... Um, are granted, they're granted by His glory, but they're also granted by His excellence. So these two words, glory and excellence, we talked about the difference between them. Glory is the very substance of who God is, but excellence is an aspect of that glory. And that excellence refers to His moral excellence, that God always acts in accordance with that which is right. He is just in all His actions. That there is no activity or action that God will take that will be outside of that which is righteous. Now, oftentimes I think when we look at how God saves us, we sometimes will think that God's mercy overcomes His wrath or His grace overcomes His justice. And and so we we seem to, to think that we need to elevate those aspects of God's character and diminish the other aspects of God's character. But if that were the case, then God would be more gracious than He is just. And that is not right. God is perfectly just. He has perfect wrath. He also has perfect grace and perfect mercy. He does not compromise the moral character that He possesses, that moral excellence, to save us. This is what Paul says in Romans 3, 23 through 26. Here's the reality. Everyone has sinned, and what do we fall short of? The glory of God. Everyone. That is universal. So the question then comes up, well, how can God save anybody? Because those who do not align with His glory, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, they are currently under God's wrath, being prepared for His eternal judgment. So how is it then that the book of Romans, which is written to give hope in salvation, how is it possible that God can take everyone 
who fall short of God's glory and take some of them and save them. Notice what he says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or made righteous by His grace as a gift. How does this happen? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation or as a satisfaction of His wrath or as a peace offering. And that peace offering, that satisfaction comes through what? His blood. To be received by faith. So how does God make it so that those who are justly condemned can be saved? He places that judgment on Jesus. He suffers in our stead. His blood is shed to make us make a way for us to have peace with God. And then our responsibility is to receive it by what? Faith. Why does God do it this way? He does it to show His righteousness, His moral character, His excellence. He does this because He's, in His divine forbearance, passed over sin. How does he do that? He does it to show his righteousness at the present time so that he can remain just or righteous and also be the one who justifies the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Christ is the key to understanding how God can save us and still retain his moral excellence because every ounce of his wrath and justice towards us, towards those who are in Christ, is Taken by Christ on the cross. So that when He promises to save, He has saved to the uttermost those who trust in Christ. So those promises that God makes are backed up by His character and they are Guaranteed by his moral excellence. He never compromises anything. And yet he redeems. Yet he saves. Well, these promises that are granted by his glory, Peter describes as being precious and great, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Now, again, oftentimes we'll find in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, there will be an addition or a a heaping up of adjectives to describe the glory of something. And and it's almost like the apostles are, are unable in any language given to men to express the glories of what God has done. And so here we see precious and very great thrown on as adjectives to describe these promises of God. Now, what are these promises in particular? Well, the term used for promise means a binding declaration of something that is to be carried out. Right? A binding declaration of something that is to be carried out. That's a very fancy way of saying a promise. All right? well, I think we understand what a promise is. I'm going to do something and I'm going to carry it out. But the word that's used here in particular has a focus on it being declared publicly. Being declared in the presence of many. 
So, you know, it's one thing, you know, Saturday night, my wife says, can you take the garbage out? Yes, I promise I'll take the garbage out. And then Sunday morning comes along, oh, I forgot to take the garbage out. All right, I said that to her privately. But if I were to go on Facebook and say, I'm promising my wife to take the garbage out, there's a public declaration. And so if you were on Facebook and you saw that, what's likely one of the things you're going to ask me this morning? Did you take the garbage out? Because more people are able to see the promise that is made. God makes his promises publicly. You realize that they're written in Scripture. God could have chosen any means to reveal himself to mankind, but he chooses to do it through the means of things that can be verified. That he wrote down his promises and his word. And so he declares these things to be so. That means then that these promises which God is staking his glory and excellence upon, these promises, now the whole world will look and see whether or not God is faithful or not. One of the things that Peter is going to discuss later on in the book is he's going to talk about the coming of the Lord for His people again. Now, Peter is writing anywhere between 40 to 50 years, 30 30 to 50 years after Christ has ascended to the Father. Now, what was one of the promises that Jesus gave to His disciples? If I go to prepare a place for you, I will what? Return, I'll come back. And there were already problems 30 years after Jesus made that promise where people were saying, eh, Jesus isn't coming back. That was 30 years after Jesus ascended to the Father. It's been thousands of years. And Jesus still hasn't come back. Is, is, God, is God not keeping His promise? The answer is, of course not. He will come back when He determines it is time to come back. But He will come back. And so for us, the reason we know that is because it's written, right? It's in Scripture. And I just bring that up to show you the the, the way in which God has chosen to communicate Himself to mankind is verifiable. Because He's given those promises to us in His Word. Now, there are many promises of God's Word, and we don't have the time to relate all the glories of the promises we have in Christ. But I did want to spend a little bit of time and just look at what promise means to Peter, particularly in Second Peter. What are these promises that he speaks of? And we see, particularly in verse 4, the first aspects of those promises are that we are partakers of the divine nature in Christ says that through them, through these promises that are given to us by Christ, we become partakers of the divine nature. And you're probably wondering, what does that mean? Hold on, we'll get there. We also know in verse chapter 1, verse 11, that the promises that Peter points to are the fact that we will have entrance into the eternal kingdom of Christ. He says in verse 11, For in this way there will be richly 
provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That when God says He's going to save, He will save and place us in that kingdom. And of course, as we mentioned, Christ will return for His people. Chapter 3, verse 4. There are people who are going to say, where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And then he'll go on to talk about, well, for God, a thousand years are as what? A day. And a day is as a thousand years. God will keep that promise. And then finally, in chapter 3, verse 13, there is the promise of a new heaven and a new earth prepared for by Christ Chapter 3, verse 13, but according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now the thing we have to remember, what is the the bold and underlined word in each of these promises? It is Christ. And so promise in 2 Peter, these precious and very great promises of God find their fullest fullest expression in Christ Himself. Christ is the great promise that God has given. Everything else flows from Christ. If you run to Genesis 3.15 and we have the first mention of the gospel that there will be the seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent. Who is that? It's Christ. And so we find that throughout the New Testament, it is Christ that becomes the great focus of the promises of God. It is Christ's work for us. He is the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do for his sheep? Lays down his life. It's found in Christ at work in us. To them, Paul speaking of the The Old Testament saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. This is it, which is Christ where? In you, the hope of glory. And it is found in Christ's coming again to take us to himself. In John 14, 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, what is he going to do? I will come again. And I will take you to myself. Listen, the great glory of leaving this life and going beyond or of Christ coming again is not found in all the the fancy, shiny things that we think of when we think of heaven. Rather, it is the fact that Christ has brought us to himself. So that where he is, we may be also And then we see the fulfillment of that in Revelation 21, verse 2. I love this. I had never noticed this until um, this week. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It was what? Prepared. As a bride adorned for her husband. And so the nature of God's promises is that they are precious and great, and they are precious and great because Christ is precious and great. 
He is the sum, and it is from Him that all God's promises proceed. So the question for us today, Peter speaks of these promises as precious and very great. Are they precious and very great to you? Is Christ and the knowing of Him the most valuable thing in your life? Do you make much of Christ? Or do you make much of lesser things? See, the the problem with us as pilgrims as we walk this world, and in fact it's something Peter's going to point us to towards the end of chapter 4, is that we are easily pulled astray to find hope in anything else but Christ. Whether it be our careers, our finances, our relationships, whether it be our families, our friends, our entertainment, the ease of life that we seek to live out. I mean, there are so many things that we value that can easily become more valuable in our hearts than Christ. And here's the thing. All those things, they will ultimately fail you. There is no precious or very great promise in any other source but Christ. And yet, what do we do? We find ourselves valuing those things more. And then when they fail us, what does that do to our emotional and mental state? We fall apart. Well, no wonder, because we're valuing the wrong thing. We're valuing the very thing that cannot ever provide satisfaction. We must value Christ. He must be our greatest treasure. So the precious and very great promises are the promises of God to bring about our redemption in Christ. Hallelujah, we have such a Savior. But then what do those promises do to us? How do they affect us? Which brings us, secondly, to the result of God's promises. And we see this in the second half of verse 4. So we have these precious and very great promises guaranteed by the glory and excellence of Christ that point us to Christ. God gives them for a purpose. Now it's important to note that this redemption in Christ is given a purpose here by what he says, so that. The so that is providing for us a connection. Why does God give us these promises in Christ? And the answer is not so that you can live forever or so that you can go to heaven, or so that you can see loved ones that have gone on before you. Those are all true results of those promises, but they are not the ultimate result. Notice what he says. So that through them, through these promises, we may become partakers of the divine nature. What we see, first of all, is that God's promises produce conformity to Christ. Conformity to Christ. Now Peter uses this somewhat odd statement that we may become partakers of the divine nature. And there's been a lot of of 
exegetical or interpretive gymnastics that have been done to make this phrase say something that it doesn't. And so what does Peter mean when he says that we are partaking in the divine nature? Well, we have to begin, first of all, by saying what he is not saying. Peter is not saying that believers will share in the divine nature in every aspect. If that were the case, then we would all become what? Gods. How many gods are there? One. And you are not it. You know, that's, a good, that's a good mantra to say to yourself. There's only one God, and I am not it. So it is not giving this idea that we become little gods or that we become deified. Particularly the Eastern Orthodox Church has sort of gone along that way and looking and speaking of deification as a part of what happens through redemption. This really flies in the face of who God is. God does not share His glory with anyone. So Peter is not saying that we become little gods. But what Peter is saying is that by virtue of our union with Christ by faith, by being found in Him, which is something he mentions and points to, in verse 1 and 2, that we are a, a, that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ and he's speaking to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That it is in our knowing Jesus Christ that we know grace and peace. That union, by the, by, as it's described as being in him, is what this is pointing to. Now, in particular, what aspect of God's divine nature are we able to partake of? And I think if we look in context, it points back to what was said in verse 3, particularly at the very end, His excellence or His moral excellence. That we are able to, by God's grace, progressively actually live out and make righteous choices. That we're changed to become in our actual everyday lives more and more like Jesus. This is how we share in God's character. We have to recognize that Christ's righteousness is not static. What I mean by that is it's not just sort of something that we're placed into, but doesn't affect us. If you are justified declared righteous in Christ, then that justification is going to show itself in the way that your life now begins to reflect righteous living. You will be different than you were before. The righteousness of Christ never leaves you where you were. It always changes you to become more like Him. so that we are able to show righteousness in our deeds. This is a remarkable truth that we can become like Christ. Do you realize tomorrow as you walk through this world, which Peter is going to soon describe as a world that's filled with corruption and sinful desire, as you walk through this world, do you realize you don't have to be corrupted by that sin anymore? You can have a new desire given to you by God's grace in Christ. That is the wonder 
of what God does in giving us a part or allowing us to partake or to find in common or participate in the divine nature. Now, how can this be? Particularly when we looked at Romans 3, all of us, we fall far short of the glory of God. Well, we see that this conformity comes, first of all, through the new birth by the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is something that Peter had pointed to in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, 22-25, that we purify our souls by our obedience to the truth, which ultimately produces brotherly love. So we love one another earnestly from a pure heart since this is why we love one another from a pure heart, because we've been what? Born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. You notice the connection between these, this partaking in the divine nature and the promises of God, or we could sum up the promises of God as the Word of God. That those promises which provide hope for us actually continue a cycle where that hope points us back to those promises and we're transformed more and more into the image of of Jesus Christ. Then we have him quoting Isaiah. Listen, all flesh is grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is good news that was preached to you. You realize that this world has spent at least six millennia trying to figure out how to live life apart from God, and they fail every single time. That the words of men fall short all the time, but God's word is confirmed forever. So we have good news from the failures of men in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this comes because the Spirit provides new life to us. We turn away from our deadness and sin and we turn to Christ as we are born anew by God's grace and the Spirit. That's the first step to conformity or partaking fellowship in the divine nature. Secondly, it requires the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Not only does the Spirit give us new life, but He now lives within us. Romans 8, 7-9 through 9. Listen, before this new birth, our mind is set on the flesh. And this mind that's set on the flesh doesn't like God. It's hostile to God. It doesn't submit to His law. Indeed, it cannot. Listen, we need to understand in our world today, yes, we are light, yes, we are salt, yes, we are to influence our world for for the kingdom of God and showing that through change. But listen, There is no amount of political action, there is no amount of legislative change that will change the hearts of men. They cannot keep God's law. The only way that happens is if our minds are changed through the new birth. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But praise God, you, however, are not in the flesh. But what are we in? The Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Do you understand what what Paul is saying here? 
to partake of the divine nature means that the third person of the Trinity dwells in you. Now that can't happen and not impact you. You cannot have the Spirit of God and then go about through life with a life that is fully given over to sin. It's incompatible. And this conformity to Christ's image finally comes through the transforming illumination by the Spirit. And we know this passage, we've looked over it several times. When we turn to the Lord, the veil that lays over our eyes to see the Word of God, the promises of God, is removed. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so we all who are in Christ by the Spirit have our faces unveiled and we see the glory of God in His Word. And when we see that, what happens to us? We are transformed. We're metamorphosized. That's the the word underneath the Greek is metamorpheo. We're changed to be something different than what we were before. And this comes from one degree of glory to another. This all comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So how are we going to have this conformity to Christ? It must come through the Spirit's work within us. So what does this mean then? It means that by means of the Holy Spirit, we are made more like Jesus. That God's moral excellence, which is displayed in Christ perfectly, is something that we are able to live. This is what we now know. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, 24, we are putting on the new self, which is created after whose likeness? God's likeness. And that new self is found in true righteousness and holiness. And we look forward to that one day that as God's children, we do not know, uh, we, we do not know what we will be has not yet been appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be what? Like Him. Because we'll see Him as He is. You realize that the Christian life begins at the new birth by being transformed to become like Jesus. And the Christian life, as we walk the walk of a pilgrim, continues throughout our entire lives so that we become more and more like Jesus. And the Christian life comes to its consummation when we see Jesus and this entire process is complete and we are like Him in true righteousness and holiness. Jesus puts it this way in His prayer. The last, last ver- phrases of His prayer before He goes to the cross This blows my mind every time I read it. That Jesus made known to his disciples the name of the Father. He will continue to make it known for this purpose. That the love with, with, with which the Father has loved the Son may be in us. And that Christ would be where? In us. Does this not go beyond the comprehension and the fathoms of your entire thinking. God loves you in Christ the same way He loves Christ. And that 
brings us to become and to have fellowship or partaking or participation in the divine nature. What a marvelous salvation. Now, while God's promises provide this wonderful hope, this partaker of the divine nature, now the positive being stated, Peter now describes that from the negative perspective. God's promises produce deliverance from corruption. What are we not like? We know what we are like. We're meant to be like Christ. What are we not like? We're not like this corrupted world. Notice what he says at the end of verse 4. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. A few things to note about this quickly. First, we have escaped corruption. It is not a question of whether or not those in Christ will escape corruption. They have escaped corruption. We're free. We're no longer bound to this corruption. Life apart from conformity to Christ is a dark dungeon of hopelessness. But having this ability to partake in the divine nature frees us from this corruption. In fact, that's part of what happens at salvation. I think sometimes we look at the call of likeness to Christ as a prison. I can't go out with my friends and get drunk. I can't indulge in these things. I I can't be involved in these things. I have to do all these other things. And that's our flesh rising up within us because the true dungeon, the true prison, is the prison of sin that we've been freed from by God's grace. We're no longer chained by our sin. Listen, no person in their right mind, when freed from prison, runs right back into the jail to be locked up again. And yet as Christians, we do that all the time. We go back to the prison of sin. We have escaped it. Not only have we escaped this corruption, but we also have to recognize that this corruption is everywhere in this world. Notice what he says again in verse verse 4. The corruption that is currently in the world. This corruption is all around us. It is everywhere. And we see it. From TV programs to movies current political agendas, anger and hatred, suffering and pain, the world is corrupt. All around us. It's so corrupt, in fact, that God is going to destroy it with unquenchable fire. Listen, this world is unsalvageable. God will burn the elements with fervent heat. That's what Peter is going to talk about later on. I mean, if we really understand what he says there, if we tie ourselves to this world, what are we tying ourselves to? Destruction. And that is why Peter says that we've escaped this corruption because this corruption brings about destruction, but praise God in Christ, we've escaped it. Well, where does this corruption come from? Notice what he says, the last phrase of verse 4. 
This corruption that is in the world exists because of sinful desire. Corruption is driven by desire. Why is the world corrupt? Because people desire anything else but God. That's why this world is corrupt. That, in fact, this is the reason why cor- corruption entered the world in the first place. Genesis 3, 6 When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a what? Delight to the eyes and the tree was to be what? Desired. To make one wise. She took of the fruit and ate and gave some to her husband with her and he ate. Listen, these sinful desires, this desire to have what God forbids or to to go about not doing what God commands is why corruption exists. And so what we're going to see as we go into next week, or, well, a couple weeks, in verse 5, Peter now says, what does it look like to desire the right things? And that's what verses 5 and 7 are about. How do we, how do we, we've escaped this by God's work of redemption within us. Now as pilgrims, what does that look like? And we have verses 5 through 7 that provide that for us. So as we conclude our look here at verse 4, it's a reminder for us to examine what we want. What do you desire? What do you want most? If we desire pleasure, accolades, riches, ease of life more than Christ, then we are running right back into the chains of sin. We're delving deeper into the corruption of this world. And so Peter writes this as a warning to us. Listen, we've been given great and precious promises of God, guaranteed by His glory and excellence, and that moral excellence is transforming us. But realize, as pilgrims, this world is corrupt. And it's corrupted by sinful desires. Where are your desires this morning? God has provided sufficient power through the knowledge of Christ. Will you turn to Him? Will you desire Him most? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we ask that You would take it and apply it to our hearts and lives. Work in our midst by Your Spirit as only You can.